lyrical, thrill, and inspiring your trumpet journey, here's your host, James Newcomb. My guest today has been the principal trumpet of the Memphis Symphony since 1988. A few stories to share from that time, I'm sure, but he's probably best known for his impeccable horse whinny that you always hear at the end of Leroy Anderson's sleigh ride. In fact, he was kind enough to allow me to play his uh, tutorial. Well, he let me play it on the podcast just a couple weeks ago, and now here we have him live and in the studio on the show for you, Mr. Scott Moore. Welcome, sir. Thanks so much. Good to be here. So how is it that you got to be so good at the horse whinny? Because it, it was it's probably the best I've ever heard. Well, thanks. Interestingly, um, I think it all started uh, in high school. I moved to my high school, uh, Pascagoula High School, from another high school uh, uh, and um, in a different part of the state. This is in Mississippi. And, you know, I'd already been, um, like, all-state band and everything. And I moved down there, and, uh, and, and so, you know, um, we did our concerts, our Christmas concert and everything. And then this uh, girl, this bassoon player, who sat in front of me in English class, we were talking about this guy who had been in the band the year before. And he had been in all-state band, too, but he was way down the section. And, oh, I was, like, second chair or whatever as a 10th grader. And so I was... <laughs> She was like, he was so much better than you. And I'm like, but I was second chair in Allstate kind of thing. And she goes, well, his horse when he sent it, so much better. And so. Ah, okay. You know, so you know how kids are in high school. And so, but you know, out of, you know, great pain and humiliation comes opportunity. So. <laughs> <laughs> I realized that, you know, okay, fair enough. I don't sound like a horse. I'm just putting my vowels down halfway and blowing and it just doesn't sound like a horse. And I think that's what most people do. They look at Leroy Anderson's uh, instructions. He wasn't a trumpet player. He probably asked a friend of his who sounded, who did a horse when he, and he heard it. And he said, hey, how do you do that? And he goes, oh, I'll just put my vowels down halfway and do a shake or whatever, you know. And so he, like, writes vowels down halfway and puts a little squiggly line. And so, but that, that squiggly line is, like, right on that D in the staff, you know. And that's, I think that's probably what I was doing in high school. I put my all my vowels down halfway, and I just followed that squiggle on that D, just blah, 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 you know. That's not a horse. A horse goes pretty high, you know, you know. So, you know, and that, that's what you have to do, I think, is is forget what Leroy Anderson wrote and right. just try to sound like a horse. Yeah, that's the uh-huh. bottom line. Because his, I, I haven't looked at the music in years, but it starts, like, in the middle of the staff. Yeah, yeah, it's so, like a, but it's a, a note with an X head, you know, which is indefinite pitch, right? You know, okay. but it's it's on the line for a D, and that's yeah. what most people do. They start okay. right there in the middle, and they never go higher. Right. But horses, you know, aren't restrained by. Pitch. Yeah, they're not looking at the music, saying, "Oh, I got to start <laughs> <Exactly>. on <laughs> concert C." Exactly. <laughs> the yeah. best horse that I've ever heard, and it's yours is in the conversation, but the best I ever heard was. Uh, uh, his name is Mike. Um, what's his name? But I played. I lived in Hawaii, and I played with the Royal Hawaiian Band um, as a sub. And I can't. I can't remember his name. It was Mike something. But he's passed away. Rest in peace. But he did the best horse I'd ever heard in my life up to that point. And mm-hmm. he and and he 
said a lot of similar what you just said is you start high and then I think it's like the second and third valve is halfway down. You leave the first. I, I don't know ex the exact yeah. way to do it, but I, I think I think if you just visualize in your mind how it should sound, the, the mind can teach you how to do it more or less. Well, that's right. And that's, you know, to be honest, that's how you play everything on the trumpet, isn't it? You, right. you have to have the sound in your head yeah. first. Exactly. Before, you know, you can have a proper production. Because if you concentrated, fixated on the technique or the process, then we lose the ultimate goal, which is, you know, to convey a musical message. It's funny because, I mean, I was texting a buddy of mine from NEC the other day. I was in grad school with you know, 30 years ago. And I said, yeah, you know, when I was at NEC, you know, I was like, hey, I want to be known as one of the greatest principal trumpet players in the country, you know, and life was like, yeah, screw you. You get the horse when you <laughs> so, you're the greatest principal trumpet in Memphis, Tennessee. There so you we'll, go. We'll there give you that. You uh, how did you get started on trumpet? Um, at the time I was living in Greenville, Mississippi and, uh, you know, the junior high band came to elementary school and played a concert kind of recruiting deal. And so I signed up for band and, you know, um, I had wanted to play flute because my mom's friend played fl had played flute. And I was like, okay, that'd be cool. And band director, you know, Mississippi band director, he says, I don't only put girls on flute. And I'm like, okay, whatever. And then I want to play drums. But, you know, I was like the last one picked. I was the last one picked in dodgeball and everything. And even in band, I was the last one picked. You know, it was weird. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I, uh, all the, the drum section was pretty full because all the guys wanted to play drums, of course. Yeah, you know? of course. And so I asked my best friend, Steve Galston, what, what did you get? And he goes, I got trumpet. So I asked my bander if I could play trumpet too. He's like, yeah, sure. And it's just like some flippant thing like that, you know, changed the course of my life. You never know when it's happening, of course. You know, I took to it pretty quickly. And, you know, uh, I, I really wanted to play basketball, but, man, I sucked, you know. <laughs> you know, and, and fortunately, kids in seventh grade are very supportive when you're bad at, at sports. <laughs> Right. <laughs> no, oh, of right. course. Yeah. They, they, they always have your back, don't they? Yeah. I mean, so, you know, uh, I suffered just daily humiliation and scorn because of my inability to, you know, get it in the hoop. So <laughs> I just started practicing trumpet, you know, and I got good at that. You know, I found my people, you know, uh, band people, you know, um, you know, so we were the outcasts and then until I went to music school and then I was a brass player, which is kind of like being a jock at a regular school. It was kind of funny. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> it's funny how our how our environments define us, isn't it? Hundred percent. Yeah. And then you get to be grown up, you know, and you're you know, the band geeks are not yeah, I mean if you're a professional band geek, you know, you're you're kinda of one of the cool kids. More more than uh, you were when you're a kid anyway, for yeah, sure. I, I think I was just thinking about this yesterday or the other, just the other day. When you're in the band in school, you're you're like you said, you're an outcast, you're just one of the band fags or the band geeks. That's you, right. Yeah, you're yeah. you're not you're definitely not part of the cool kids, but like you, you play a professional trumpet in the symphony, no less. Yeah. And you're the creme de la creme of society in in people's eyes. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's it's quite a turnaround. It's you know it's like that song Skater Boy, you know, real life kind of thing. You know, the girl uh, who wouldn't get, give the guy attention any attention in in school. Now all of a sudden she's buying tickets to go hear his band play. You know. People being people is never boring. How did you get end up at New England Conservatory? Well, I, I auditioned. So I, I started college at Delta State University in Mississippi. Um, it, um, there was a great teacher there, Mike Ewald. And uh, so I went to study with him. 
And after my junior year, he took a job down at McNeese State in Lake Charles, Louisiana. So I followed him down there and finished my bachelor's down there. And that was great because, you know, Delta State was great because, uh, you know, he was there. And I made good friends and had lots of life experiences and and so forth there, you know. But um, not a lot of uh, opportunities, you know, other than what I got in the, the trumpet studio. And then we went down to Lake Charles, and so I was playing a second trumpet to him in the local orchestra, which is quite good for, um, for um, you know, a town that size. Um, and um, we did lots of big repertoire, you know, Mahler II and, you know, Rosen Cavalier, all these things I remember. So we had to play second trumpet to him, and then there were just like, you know, there's a Catholic church on every corner in southwest Louisiana, you know. Everybody's Cajun French. Most of my friends there didn't start speaking English till they started grammar school. You know, they spoke Cajun French at home. It's crazy. But, you know, all these Catholic churches who are hiring you for every kind of feast day and festival day. So lots and lots and lots of gigs like that. So I got a lot. And played in Dixieland Band, you know, and Brass Quintet. I mean, just overload. But anyway, after that, you know, I was like, man, this is going great. And I told Mikey, well, I was like, you know, I, I think I kind of like stay here and work on my master's. He goes, no, you're not. <laughs> he goes, you, you know, I've done pretty much all with you I can. So we started looking at schools. And um, as it turned out, the the son of the conductor of the Lake Charles Symphony, uh, the conductor was named William Kushner. Um, he was a great guy. There's, I could talk about him all day. But his son, Eric Kushner, uh, uh, was playing at, at that time an orchestra in Detmold, Germany. Now he's... Um, in the uh, Vienna Symphony, not the Philharmonic, but in the Vienna Symphony. He went, he was principal there for a while. Um, but anyway, he um, came home to visit their brother, uh, his brother, actually, Tony Kushner, you know, who did Angels in America and, and that type of stuff. So that's, you know, quite a family. Anyway, so Eric came home to visit, and he had gone to NEC, and he was telling me all about it. And, you know, I, look, I grew up in Mississippi, and uh, our all-state band went to um, – my senior year, we went to Montreal, and then we went to New York City for a few days. And New York City in 1979 was rough, you know. It just scared the crap out of me. And so, you know, of course, the natural thing in the conversation is you think about going to Juilliard, but, you know, a little Mississippi kid, I'm not going to New York City. So um, Boston sounded like a good alternative, you know. And so um, I sent a tape, cassette tape, you know. Actually, it might have been real to real. <laughs> think about it. It was that long ago. to audition, so I didn't even go there. The first time I, I went to Boston was in a moving van, which, if you know anything about Boston drivers, was insanity. But, um, boy, I loved it. I loved Boston. Um, for, one of the first things I did, um, uh, we had an apartment on uh, Westland Ave about a block from Symphony Hall. And so I just walked into Symphony Hall, filled out an uh, application to be an usher. And so I was a substitute usher. And since I lived a block away, somebody was always sick, right? So basically that meant I could work any concert I wanted to. And so I heard the Boston Symphony four times a week. I heard all the great touring orchestras that came through, you know. So it was, that was just, that experience you can't buy. And I was amazed at my colleagues at school I mean, they gave out free tickets uh, to the Friday afternoon BSO concerts. You know, um, every Friday afternoon, you go to sign up and you show up and you get your tickets that, you know, little old ladies turn in. And, um, but, you know, people, 
my colleagues was like, oh, I can't go today. I got to practice. I'm like, what are you practicing for? Yeah. You know? yeah. Well, I mean, they're probably still in the practice room, you know, 30 years later because they're, they're not working anywhere. Right. Because you're not going to learn anything if you don't listen a lot. You know? so. so you made you made the sub list for the ushers at Symphony Hall in Boston. Yeah, yeah. So, nice. and yeah, first call like sub. First call <laughs> sub. Like I say, <laughs> I lived a block away. So, I could, you know, somebody was always missing. So I, I worked Whatever I wanted to. If I had something going on, no, I can't make it tonight. He'd call me the next day, you know? Well, that's an, that's an example of just taking advantage of an opportunity that other people didn't recognize. And the, along those lines, the other thing we did is there were like nine trumpet players in the top orchestra. So we rotate, you know, of course. So what we decided is there was a room down in the basement, kind of a big room called the Symphonia Room. We basically got together and we said, okay, if you're, so we're going to get together here during orchestra rehearsals. I think they're like Tuesday and Thursday mornings, nine o'clock, something like that. And everybody will get together. And if you, if it's time for you to be on stage, go be on stage. If not, we're going to be down here. We're going to be playing uh, excerpts for each other. We're going to be playing section stuff together. You know, and we busted each other's balls and, and really it was probably the best learning experience of my life, honestly. And everybody in that room pretty much has, uh, has jobs now still okay. to this day. Nice. So it's that, and then just that constant exposure to great, great music. Absolutely, it's yeah. just it just probably seared into your subconscious. Oh, hundred percent. Okay, so you get your bachelor's at Delta State and McNeese State, and then your is it like a master's degree or a performance certificate? At master's NEC? degree, yeah. Oh, master's. master's in trumpet performance at NEC. Uh -huh. All right. So if you're uh, undergrad at Delta and then McNeese State, what are you thinking at that time as far as your career? Are you thinking? Ten years from now, I'm going to be principal in Boston. What was your thought process at that time? Yeah, when I first started college, I wanted to be like a lead player, you know. My dream was to go to Las Vegas and play in some of those show bands, I guess, you know. But those kind of fell apart um, pretty right about that same time, you know. Um, so because every, every hotel and casino used to hire, you know, full-time um, big bands and orchestras. I started getting into orchestral music and started working on excerpts just as part of my lessons. And then I was like, okay, this, this sounds like something I wanted to do, you know? And, uh, so I just started working, but you know, we had no orchestra at Delta state, you know? Um, I went to all state orchestra my sophomore year, but in Mississippi, I think there were at that time, there might've been two schools in the entire state that had a string program. Basically it was, winds and brass with you know the tupelo high school string section or whatever it was you know it was bad you know i mean we played you know we played pursuit and finale from firebird that was cool you know but it was just it was just not a fun experience you know because you know anyway so i never went back to all state band i was just i mean all state orchestra i kept doing you know all state band oops sorry and the district bands and that kind of stuff you know and you know i played in jazz band at school that kind of stuff it was just you know, marching band. I was real. I was into DCI and stuff. I never marched in corps or anything, but I, I sure liked that stuff when I was a kid. You know, so like most kids do. You know, you don't get into playing trumpet because you know you want to play Mozart symphonies. You know, <laughs> you get there because you want to play high and loud and stuff. You know, so yeah, pianissimo it doesn't appeal to you when you're 17. No, but you learn quick. You know, when you get your first job, at that's you know that's how you're going to get fired. If you don't figure that shit out, you know. Yeah, that's how you that you, you probably win it. The I think the criteria for winning a job and keeping the job are vastly different, aren't they? 
I, I think that's very true. Yeah. Yeah. I, I do coaching some orchestral uh, auditions uh, from time to time. And, and like I tell people, I always give them the caveat that I can teach you to be a runner up to every major orchestra in the country, but, you know, cause that was kind of my history. You know, I, I did very well at a lot of auditions, but never quite, um, you know, won the big one, you know, but, um, but as I always say, you know, the, the skills for uh, auditioning and the skills for playing an orchestra are different for sure. You know, they're not mutually exclusive because what do you work on when you're working on audition? You work on evenness of sound, you work on your rhythm, you work on uh, stylistic accuracy, different tone colors. All those things that you work on are beneficial to good ensemble playing. So, you know, it, it's not like you're you're working on something that's not going to be helpful. But, but, it's, but it's different to put your hyper-focus on that one thing and then and, and what was it like for you to you, you win the job and then you what was like the adjustment like from a very different uh skill set to surviving or or coexisting in an orchestra i mean there are lots of things i mean i remember yeah my first orchestra job was in chattanooga the hardest thing for me was counting rests you know it's it's you, you work on the big licks but you know you gotta you gotta be able to come in at the right time, so um, store studying the scores and and so on helps with that too. You know, so you know when to come in. But you know, you gotta stay focused in between the big licks and count your rests and do your stuff. Other big thing is you know, you you might be sitting next to the same people for the rest of your career. You know, and if you're in a marriage, it's not working out. You know you can take care of that. But if you have a colleague that's not working out that they're not going anywhere and you need to work it out. You know, my second trumpet player and I, uh, we always joke that she and I um, were each other's uh, most successful long-term relationship. (laughs) (laughs) We've been sitting next to each other for since 94, I think is when she came. Wow. I tell people all the time, they ask what my job is like. And I say, you know, when I say this to people who play in other orchestras, they say, what's it like in Memphis? And I say, I like the people who sit on both sides of me. And every single one of them goes, oh my God, that's huge. You know, because yeah. I, I realize that's not the way it is everywhere. So if you have issues with somebody, you got to work it out. You got to figure it out. You have, sometimes you have to, you know, swallow your pride, apologize. Even if you don't feel like you have to apologize, just like, you, you within a successful relationship, any kind of relationship. Do you do you think the audition process is flawed? I guess what I'm asking is how much do they factor the personality and the ability to get along with others into the process of hiring a new musician? Yeah, they don't really, do they? I mean, we have a, you know, we started in Memphis several years ago. We at least have a, and I think a lot of orchestras probably do this, you know, but, you know, we have a interview kind of like, we just kind of sit and chat in the finals, we have our, you know, few people we're looking at, but it's still nothing like, you know, I mean, a lot of people will have somebody in for a trial and so forth and see how that works out. But still, you know, over the long term, yeah, it's it's hard to tell, you know, and um, the audition process is based almost exclusively on how you're playing that day. Having American in Paris on the um, audition list does not guarantee that somebody's going to be able to play a Pops concert. Because a, a pops concert is way different, you know, uh, than American in Paris. So I mean, you've got to play. You got to play lead trumpet sometimes. Sometimes you have to play jazz solos. Is an American trumpet player to not be able to do that stuff? I mean, like I said earlier, 
we go, we want to be trumpet players so we can play high and loud. And on Pops concert, you get to do it. You know, why would you not want to do that? We've already talked a little bit about the, like the differences between auditioning for an orchestra and then the reality of life in an orchestra. What was the biggest challenge for you to adjust to life in a professional orchestra? You know, I'll be honest. I didn't have a lot of orchestral experience before, until I got a job. I knew the excerpts. I listened to orchestras and I played. Sure, I played in the NEC orchestra, which played you know two or three times a year. Um, and then I you know pick up orchestras around Boston. I played in that Lake Charles Symphony down in Louisiana. Yeah, I didn't have really a lot of experience playing in a in an orchestra. So I kind of learned as I went. I kind I tried to stay open to it, but also I was young and cocky and thought I knew how things should go. You know. Be, you are full of ideas from all your different teachers from the things that they tell you and you get there and you're like, okay, I'm going to do it this way. And then it's like, but you know, everybody around you is not on board with that. They didn't get the same input from their teachers that you got from your teachers. At some point you have to be your own teacher and leave behind, you know, all these preconceived notions and kind of, you know, that's what being a musician is really. It's, it's about listening and adapting, you know, all the time, you know, you can never be, as a principal trumpet player, you can never be, this is the way it is, no way are we doing it any other way, you know. I mean, I'll lay it down, but if somebody else is playing something differently and it's not a big deal to me, then yeah, sure, let's do that. I don't care, you know. The bottom line is that we all do it together, you know. If the conductor asks us to do something differently, do it differently. You know, don't take on a conductor. That's suicide. So those types of things. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess when I was younger, I might, I might have challenged conductors a little bit here and there, and that's just not smart. How did you challenge a conductor? You know, if, if we're asked to play something, you know, softer or louder or whatever, and I would just kind of like make some snappy, passive-aggressive kind of remark or something, which is childish. You know, it's not a big deal. Nine times out of ten, if a conductor tells you you're too loud, it's not because you're necessarily too loud. It's because you're playing with the wrong sound or the wrong style. You know, and it doesn't fit what everyone else is doing. Trumpet players have a tendency like, all the time, and that's just not appropriate most of the time, you know? You know, you want to be able to have a rounder attack and a, a warmer, uh, fuller sound that makes sense and blends with horns and trombones more, you know? That's a big problem with a, a, a American trumpet playing, I think, a lot is that, you know, we've got the trombones with, you know, big resonant sounds, and then the horns, of course, you know, pointed backwards, and they're, you know, very conical instrument, and then trumpet's sitting on the top by a, you know, very bright sound. It doesn't work, you know. So I think how we can mitigate that uh, discrepancy in our, um, in our sounds so that, you know, we put the music first and we put the sound of the ensemble above our own ego is, is the way we can be a better uh, musician and a better team player and and like you said like the conductor may say you're too loud but maybe he he, he means something else it's like he doesn't that's necessarily right. want you to play softer he wants you to play differently and that's right it's incumbent right. on you as the player to know what he wants that's right and nine times out of ten when a conductor wants you he, when he says play that shorter he doesn't mean this i mean if you're playing 16th notes you can't make them much shorter right what he really wants is more clarity in the articulation you know so he, he wants more clarity, not necessarily shorter. You know, you have to learn what they really mean. It, so. Because they're, they're in a rush. They, they have like uh, a right. few milliseconds to think of the right words and they don't necessarily say the right thing. Sure. And, sure. and so, yeah, it's an interpretation yeah. of what, what they want versus what they actually say they want. Right. 
Right. Is there is there a more like you you already said that you get snarky or you get chippy with a conductor if they say something like that and that that didn't work out. But is there a way to tactfully or respectfully suggest to a conductor maybe something else could work better? It depends on the situation. It depends on the conductor. I would say most of the time, if there's something you really feel like you need to say to a conductor or ask a conductor, it's best to do it uh, during a break or um, you know not in front of the whole orchestra. Try to be you know deferential. You know, our music director right now, uh, Bob Moody, is fantastic. Um, really great guy to to work with. And it's easy to talk to him about stuff, you know. And sometimes he'll say, nope, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, okay, you're the boss. It, I don't care. I scan off my nose. Kill your beauties type of thing. What's that? Uh, kill your beauties. I don't know if I, I think it was a Bob Dylan phrase. I think I probably butchered oh, it. That? But you just, uh, whatever is, is valuable to the to you in that moment, just eh, five seconds later, it's, it's, it's in the past. And it really doesn't make that big of a difference anyway. Now, Memphis Symphony is not doesn't come up in the and I say this respectfully but it doesn't no, come up in the in the in the conversation of like the premier orchestras of America you have Chicago you have Minnesota New York San Francisco and then there's Memphis I'm sure it's a nice town I'm sure it's a fine orchestra but has the thought ever come to you to say I would be happier if I were in Chicago. Well, uh, I mean, the thought came to me, you know, many times. And, you know, I mean, I was a runner up for a job in Chicago. I was a runner up for a job in Boston. And, you know, I mean, I, I had several near escapes, uh, you know, back when I was doing competitive trumpeting, you know. Um, a job like that doesn't always bring happiness. And, you know, there are plenty of people you can talk to who are in those orchestras or who have been in those orchestras and moved on to other orchestras. Like, as I was saying earlier, you know, I like the people who sit on both sides of me, and that's great. You know, I um, have, have done enough uh, subbing with major orchestras to know um, what I have that I feel lucky about. And I also, you know, see the things that, yeah, okay, you know, if uh, things had gone a little differently on a certain day, this could have been my life. Memphis is a great town, and it's such a great town for music. Um, you know, all kinds of music. I mean, my God, the the musicians here, you know, blues and R&B and, you know, just the music that's come from here, you know. I mean, people think of, of Elvis, but, you know, I mean, you've got like, you know, Sam and Dave and Otis Redding and Isaac Hayes, and you know, it goes on and on. All these greats, you know, who were born here, who've made music here. You know, it's, it's a very special place. And um, our hall is amazing. It's really one of the, you know, most unsung, uh, you know, best kept secrets in the country, I think, how amazing our hall is. It's it's great acoustically, and it's beautiful, right down on the river. And, you know, the orchestra, you know, we we really uh, uh, punch above our weight, you know. It, it is such a good band. It's, it, you know, guest conductors are always amazed, and guest artists, because, you know, we, we really, you know, we enjoy <laughs> making music together. And uh, it's a rare alchemy when that happens, you know. I've played with some orchestras that, you know, they get paid a whole lot more than we do, and, man, the people are just just unhappy and, you know, hate to be there. I'm like, if you're going to hate your job, you know, hate your job, you know, for more money, doing something else, you know. 
<laughs> That's the way I look at it. I've, I've spoken and I've heard stories about uh, orchestral musicians who are, they're burned out and they're just, they're just flat out unhappy. I wonder what causes that because they, maybe they have certain uh, ideals of how music should be or the role that music should play in their life. And then they get into the reality of the orchestra and culture shock. And it's, it's very, very vastly different from what they imagined was, is the reason that they pursued music in the first place. Hmm. You know, I used to go out when I was in Boston. I, I remember going out for drinks sometimes with the Boston Symphony, uh, some of the Boston Symphony musicians and listen to them bitch about Seiji Ozawa and, and then so-and-so playing out a tune and all this other stuff, you know. So it's, you know, it's the same everywhere, you know. People are, are going to bitch and moan and, you know, I'm not saying we don't have those people, but I am saying that, you know, by and large, um, yeah, my second trumpet player and I, you know, I'm 61. She's maybe a couple years older. Um, and we are still, you know, talking all the time about things we're figuring out. You know, I mean, it's a constant learning process. And we're, we're like little kids, you know, I mean, we're just, I, I love learning new things and figuring stuff out and, you know, changing, you know, mouthpieces around seeing what this will do you know you know like mike ewald used to say you you spend your life looking for the magic mouthpiece and then you die does a magic mouthpiece actually exist who knows probably not but magic mouthpieces yeah we did a cancer blows uh, concert here uh in september and it was fantastic you know so um and so I, I had to play, you know, principal in the orchestra in the first half. We did Pines of Rome, and all those guys were playing the all-stage parts, all of our guest guys. And I played um, Song of Hope with Jens and with uh, Jose Sijaba. And then um, we did this West Side Story Suite with Wayne Bergeron, which is amazing. And then I had to play lead in the big band in the second half, you know. So it was a big show for me, you know. But anyway, not as big as for like Wayne and Arturo and those guys, you know. But I know we're sitting back there in the big band, and so Wayne's up playing some stuff, and then we see him just kind of like reach in, and he, and he switches mouthpieces, and I'm like, turn to <laughs> turn to the guy who's splitting lead book with me. I'm like, do you see that? And he goes, yeah, I saw that. And I'm like, so they do it too, see? <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, you can switch mouthpieces out. No, nobody's going to get up and leave. <laughs> yeah, whatever gets the job done. 100%, yeah. So I, I, th- I don't think I got the name of your uh, teacher at NEC. Oh, yeah. So first year there, I studied with Bob Nagel and the second year with Charlie Schluter. So two very opposite ends of the spectrum there. Um, So I had Mike Ewald, uh, who grew up in L.A. He's a West Coast guy, you know, Um, great sound, but, you know, very compact sound, you might say, you know. Um, And then Bob Nagel, old school New York, Charlie Schluter, you know, just like wide, huge sound, you know. So... And, you know, so I had all those things running around in my head, and it was kind of messing me up. So I started going to see Arnold Jacobs after I got to Memphis. I'd go up in summers and uh, take lessons from him, you know, and that was great. He kind of helped me put it all together and figure out who I wanted to be. You were describing that those those scenes at, at the uh, basement of the, uh, I think, the rehearsal hall at NEC, and it sounds to me like that those were more of your mentors than your teachers. Maybe I'm wrong, but maybe I'm misunderstanding. Well, we... we um, you know, we learned a lot from each other, and we just, we didn't hold back, you know. I mean, that was what was great about it, you know. So I think if every school could get that kind of camaraderie going among the students, you know, then 
I think it would be so so beneficial for everyone, you know. But um, yeah, and it, it sounds like it was safe. Like you can criticize someone and not feel and not be worried about hurting their feelings or. Yeah. We'd say that sounds like yeah. shit. You, know, you need to yeah. do this, and then we yeah. go drink beers. You know, so right. it, it was, that was it. It was great. Just have have a thick skin and and don't take anything personally. That's right. Which is great training for being a principal trumpet player. Let me tell you. So, because you're going to uh, you're going to screw up mightily in front of two thousand people, often. You know, and if that bothers you, then you're going to keep screwing up the rest of that concert. You know, it's going to happen. And it will happen again in the future. So you just have to roll with that. Scott Moore is our guest on Trumpet Dynamics. We're winding down on time. I have two more questions for you, and then okay. we will both part ways, as will our listeners. Now, you've been at this trumpet thing for a while. Yeah. You've been you've been at this principal trumpet thing for a while. You definitely have the horse whinny down. <laughs> but my, but my question is, what piece of advice would you give to uh, a Scott Moore today that's up and coming, looking, thinking about what he wants to do on trumpet, 18, 20, 22 years old. What would you tell this young man or woman? There will probably be tough episodes in your career where you have to reevaluate everything. And it's important to, you know, to learn, to, to figure out what, why you do what you do. I mean, I've been through a few times in my life where I've changed my embouchure. I've completely, you know, broken everything down and started all over. That was about 15 years ago when I almost quit playing. Why I do what I do, right? And a lot of people just go through this routine of I do my, my warm-up, my hour-and-a-half routine, and but they don't know why they're doing it. So know why you're doing things, you know, and understand what you're doing. Um, but, yeah, always put the music first is my my biggest piece of advice and everything else seems to follow after that. If you put the music first, you will put your relationship with your colleagues first. You will put your respect for the conductor first. You will put um, your ability to be a team player first and you will be hard on yourself and uh, keep striving to be a better musician all the time. If you put the music first, that's the bottom line. Good stuff, man. That's great. And fine. Final question. Now this is a bit theoretical and so it's going to require you to think a little bit get get creative get imaginative and maybe this scenario has already happened and you can just recall a happy memory but this has to do with like your dream perfect gig and the question is uh, just paint a picture for us you have just played the perfect gig it is at the best possible venue you have played the best possible music repertoire for the occasion. It's the end of the concert, and the audience, full house, is on their feet, standing ovation. They don't want anything more, and they don't want anything less. What have you just done? It's happened a few times, you know. I mean, <laughs> it's great. Great hall, and when the orchestra's really locked in, you know, and I get that solo bow. Our audience here, audience here are amazing. It's like being a rock star, dude. I can't even tell you. They scream so loud. It's just great, you know. But yeah, I mean, the end of Mahler 5, and I get the solo bow, and I hold my horn up above my head, you know, like I'm, uh, you know, you know, like I'm, uh, you know, a basketball player or something, you know, and, and they just go nuts. That's, that's as good as it gets. 
you know, I've been to concerts and, um, in lots of major cities with major orchestras where the audiences don't scream like they do here. So I can't imagine wanting to do something, be somewhere else, you know? So that's it. You know, people, my big thing is people ask me, you know, Hey, how's it going? You know? And my stock response is always living the dream, you know? And you know, but moments like that, I really am. I mean, that's as good as it gets right there. Ah, very nice. Very well said. And, uh, it's just opened my eyes to a lot of, of, of Memphis Symphony. It's, it's something that I haven't heard a whole lot about. But Yeah, I wish we had some recordings out and so forth, but, you know, maybe in the future we can. There's been some talk about doing some things, but who knows. Well, anytime I talk with uh, you, or I talk to a couple of guys in the Utah Symphony. They, they like their jobs, too. It makes me want to yeah. get out on the road and just go visit. There's so many good orchestras that are under the radar. Yes. Uh, the major orchestra um, right. limelight, right. you, know, you know, and it's just it's too bad, but that's just kind of the way it is. Yeah. It is the way it is. Scott Moore has been our guest. Thank you, sir, for sharing a little bit of your journey. You're very welcome. That's a wrap for this episode of Trumpet Dynamics, telling the story of the trumpet in the words of those who play it. If you or someone you know has a dynamic story you think should be shared on this show, please email us at podcast at jamesnewcombontrumpet.com and to subscribe to James Newcomb's email newsletter, visit trumpetdynamics.com or jamesnewcombontrumpet.com. Thank you for listening and we'll be in your earball soon.